We have our uh, Bible reading now, and it's on uh, page 17, it's Genesis 24, and we're going to start with verses 1 to 11, it's on page 17 of the Church Bibles. Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked him, What if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back here. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. Then the servant left, taking with him ten of his master's camels, loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Naharim and made his way to the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time the women go out to draw water. We're now going to continue reading, um, if you could turn the page to page 18, we're going to continue to reading in verse 42 where Abraham's servant is in the middle of a speech to Rebecca's family. Um, So here we go from 42. When I came to the spring today, I said, Lord, God of my master Abraham, if you will, please grant success to the journey on which I have come. See, I am standing beside this spring. If a young woman comes out to draw water and I say to her, please let me drink a little water from your jar, and if she says to me, drink, and I'll draw water for your camels too, let her be the one the Lord has chosen for my master's son. Before I finished praying in my heart, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. She went down to the spring and drew water, and I said to her, please give me a drink. She quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, drink. And I'll water your camels too. So I drank and she watered the camels also. I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, son of Nahor, whom Milcah bore to him. Then I put the ring in her nose and the bracelets on her arms. And I bowed down and worshipped the Lord. I praised the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me on the right road to get the granddaughter of my master's brother for his son. Now, if you will show me kindness and faithfulness, my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, so I may know which way to turn. Laban and Bethuel answered, This is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rebekah. Take her and go, and let her become the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has directed. When Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. Then the servant brought out gold and silver jewellery and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebekah. 
He also gave costly gifts to her brother and to her mother. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night there. When they got up the next morning, he said, Send me on my way to my master. But her brother and her mother replied, Let the young woman remain with us ten days or so, then you may go. But he said to them, Do not detain me. Now that the Lord has granted success to my journey, send me on my way so I may go to my master. Then they said, Let's call the young woman and ask her about it. So they called Rebekah and asked her, Will you go with this man? I will go, she said. So they sent their sister Rebekah on her way, along with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the cities of their enemies. Well, good morning, church. Uh, My name's Tim. I'm the youth pastor here at Norwest. It's fantastic to be with you this morning, to uh, visitor or regular alike. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a God who speaks, that you haven't remained silent, but that you speak to us through your word. We praise you for that, Lord, that through your word we can learn about who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. We pray that as we look at Genesis 34 this morning, uh, 24 this morning that you'll guide us and you'll teach us new things about who you are and what you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you do when you reach a fork in the road? When you've got a decision to make in life, how do you make those decisions? Maybe you have a potential employer who is waiting on your call to tell them whether you're going to accept or reject a job offer. And you're trying to work out, do you take it? Or maybe you're in between work and you are trying to work out what kind of jobs to apply for. Do you stay in the same industry? Do you go elsewhere? Do you go back to uni? Do you go to uni for the first time? Maybe you have an aged parent who desperately, resolutely wants to stay in their own home, yet you know they can't look after themselves. How do you make wise decisions? How do we do these things? About 12 months ago, I had a a difficult decision to make. I was recently returned to Australia from overseas and I had the decision about whether I go to uh, theological college and train uh, and improve um, my education to do ministry or whether I join Norwest Anglican and come on board staff as the youth pastor. And I'm glad I made the right decision. But I think probably if I did go to college, I'd be saying the same thing now. I'm glad I made a good decision. And sometimes we can make decisions that go uh, are good no matter what way they are. But maybe you're in a situation where there are, instead of two good options, there are two really difficult options. And you know you need to make a call one way or the other, but you don't know which one to decide. How in this life that we live do we make good decisions? We're in the middle of a series in Genesis called God is Faithful. And we've seen... In Abraham's life, how God has been faithful to him and how Abraham has followed God. And we've seen him wrestle with God, with Sodom and Gomorrah. We've seen him take agonizing steps of faith up the mountain to sacrifice Isaac. And all looking back to Genesis 12, where God has promised Abraham that he will bless him. 
and that he will make him into a great nation. And as we come to Genesis 24, Abraham has been walking with God for at least 50 years, if not many more. And we will see today that walking with God through good experiences and bad enables us to make good decisions. Uh, Let's open up our Bibles, uh, if you have them with you, to Genesis 24. And we're going to first of all look at the wisdom of Abraham. 24 verse 1. Abraham was now very old and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I'm living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. This is a wisdom call from Abraham. He hasn't had a word from God to tell him to do this. He hasn't had all that clear instruction about where Isaac should get a wife from. He's just, in the previous chapter, seen his wife pass away. He knows that he's getting on in years. And so he figures that if God's going to be faithful to his promise, it's probably going to be a helpful thing for Isaac to have a wife. And so he's faced with the dilemma, well, where do, we get, where do I get a wife for Isaac from? Verse 3 in 24 shows us that Canaan isn't a suitable place in Abraham's mind. And so he's racking his brain. He's saying, well, where do I get a wife for my son from? How do I make a wise decision? Wouldn't it be great to get a word from God to tell me what to do? But there's nothing. And so he thinks. And perhaps he thinks back to the end of chapter 22, where we read verse 20. Sometime later, Abraham was told, Milcah is also a mother. She has born sons to your brother, Nahor. Who was the firstborn? Boaz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. I did pretty well there. Um, <laughs> and then the narrator steps in again and says that uh, Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. So Abraham hadn't heard about Rebekah, but he had heard that his family back in his own country had been growing. They'd been expanding, and so presumably... There were young, suitable women there. And so he makes his servant take this oath, that he will go back to Abraham's own country and find a wife for Isaac from there. It's a wisdom call. And it continues. Uh, Verse 5, the servant asked Abraham, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country that you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on earth, saying to your offspring, I'll give this land, he will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you'll be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. And so the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. You see, the normal course of events in life is that we don't get uh, a word from God. We don't get divine revelation about what the way forward is. We just have to make a good decision. And Abraham's servant here is wise as well because he's unsure about something and so he asks someone wiser. He asks Abraham, well, if, uh, if this happens, if she's unwilling, what do I do? 
And Abraham, being faithful to what God has instructed him, says that Isaac shouldn't go back. But what we see in Abraham's life to this stage is that it's turning into a worked example of Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. That says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Abraham has trusted God through thick and thin. He's lent not on his own understanding, but has always sought to do what God has instructed. And now, in this chapter of just absolute blessing on Abraham, we see that he is thinking like God is thinking. Abraham's will and his desires and his passions have been bent and shaped to be like what God's will is. And when we think and we love and we desire the same things that God desires, he blesses our decisions. But part of a wise decision and part of realising what God will bless and what he won't is holding life and holding our decisions with a loose grip. Did you notice verse 8? Verse 8 reads, If the woman is unwilling to come back, then you'll be released from this oath of mine. And what Abraham's saying there is, I think this is a good decision. I think this is a wise course of action. But I might be wrong. God might have other plans. I think this is the best way forward, but if this doesn't happen, if God doesn't direct in this way, then that's okay. Abraham knows that even if he can't find a wife for Isaac, somehow God will be faithful to his promise. Because Abraham rests in the sovereignty of God. He trusts in the Lord with all his heart that God will be good to his promise. He's not the only one who trusts in God's sovereignty in this chapter. Also, Uh, we see that in the prayer of the servant. Uh, This servant who's uh, presumably been with Abraham for many years and seen uh, what Abraham has seen, he too trusts in God's sovereignty because it's a huge task that he's been given. Can you imagine giving someone the instruction to go to a foreign country and uh, find a wife for someone and you need to convince them to be convince the girl to be the wife you need to convince the girl's family to be the wife but they can't meet the person and they can't know all that much about you it's a huge task that the servant has but rather than be overawed by the task he's faithful he knows if god is going to bless this then it's going to happen and so he plans he goes to the well where hard-working women will be And he prays. Verse 12, he prays, The Lord God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. If he's going to be successful, he knows it's only because God is in in control. Only because God is in charge. Verse 14, May it be that when I say to a young woman, Please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, Drink and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen. For your servant Isaac. 
By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. He knows that if he's going to be successful, it's only because God is working. He knows that God is sovereign, that God is in charge. And God answers that prayer. He gives Rebecca, who is both hardworking and generous and is beautiful and is a virgin and is a part of Abraham's family. It's just a chapter. It's just a story of God's loving kindness to Abraham, his servant. And for the mature believer, the sovereignty of God, this God who does act in loving kindness towards us, is a great, great comfort. Because it just takes the pressure off. We still make decisions like the servant. We still work hard. And when we looked at the way that the servant talks to Rebecca's family, we see he's quite shrewd. He presents, he tells the truth, but in a way that emphasizes Abraham's wealth to make it more appealing. He emphasizes God's hand in all of these things to make it more convincing. He's shrewd. And so like the servant, we still work hard, but we trust that God is in control. And ultimately, we're happy with things being in God's hands. The sole motivator for the servant's prayer is God's sovereignty, that God is in charge and that he gives direction. And so praying for the Christian is, it's less like rubbing a magic lamp and presenting requests to a genie than it is like a son who says to his father, can we go on holiday next week? And the father might say, yes, we can do that, which is great. Or he might say, no, you're better off being in school. And so when we pray to God, we can be thankful if he dismisses our request because we trust that he knows better. We trust that he is in charge. We trust that his plans are good. And we trust that he is faithful. And he will come good on his good and great promises to us. If he dismisses our request, we can be thankful that he did so. As we love and as we follow and as we trust the sovereign God of the Bible, our life will more and more be one of both prayer and praise. Did you notice the praise of the servant in this chapter? Multiple times. Instead of first thanking the people who have given him a favorable response, he praises God. When Laban and uh, Bethuel, Rebekah's brother and father, say, uh, give him permission to take Rebekah as the wife of Isaac, before he thanks them, he praises God. Because he knows that God is the one who has made this decision, as well as Laban and Bethuel. And as we, like the servant, trust God, as we rest in his sovereignty and follow him, we will see our lives being one of both prayer and praise. We'll pray like him and we'll praise like him. Previously, when we might have just enjoyed a sunny day in the middle of winter, now we thank God for his goodness in providing it. Previously, when we uh, might have just enjoyed the relationships in our family, now we're thankful to God who has blessed us in that way. Where previously we might have marveled at our own ability to achieve things for ourselves, 
now we repent of our pride and thank God for the gifts that he has lavished upon us. We'll see his hand in everything. But our life is not just prayer and praise, it's also the walk of obedience. We are called to live obedient lives. And we're going to see this in the somewhat suspect example of Laban, the uh, loyal example of the servant, and then the remarkable example of Rebekah. First of all, let's look at Laban. Uh, Verse 29 in 24, if you have your Bibles there. We read, Now Rebekah had a brother named Laban, and he hurried out to the man at the spring. As soon as he had seen the nose ring, the gold nose ring, and the bracelets on his sister's arms, and had heard Rebekah tell what the man said to her about Abraham's wealth, he went out to the man and found him standing by the camels near the spring. Come, you who are blessed by the Lord, he said. Why are you standing out here? I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. It's when Laban sees the wealth that is around Abraham's servant that he gets excited. And it's not till later in Genesis that we really see Laban's character sort of really come out. And we see that he's a really deceptive guy and he's a schemer and he's a scammer. But we see hints of it here. We see what he desires. We see where his passions are. And it's a reminder to us that we will be obedient to whatever we desire most. If we desire God more than anything else, we'll make wise decisions. If there are other things in life that we desire most, that will show in our decision-making. And perhaps they may not be as wise. Uh, In verse 50, we see Laban um, give permission, along with his father, for Rebekah to be taken as Isaac's wife. Then in verse 53, the gifts get exchanged. So 53... Then the servant brought out gold and silver jewellery and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave costly gifts to her brother, Laban, and to her mother. And then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night there. And when they got up the next morning, he said, send me on my way to my master. But her brother, Laban, and her mother replied, let the young woman remain with us ten days or so, then you may go. Now, we don't know exactly what Laban's motive is here, Um, they may be pure. But judging by what we know of Laban's character, he's probably trying to be up to something. Maybe he wants to delay Rebecca's departure so he can barter for a better price for her uh, to be Isaac's wife. Uh, Or perhaps he just wants to ingratiate himself with Abraham's family and his servants so he has higher standing within uh, that social structure. Uh, We don't know why, but he wants to delay Rebecca's departure, having given permission Uh, in the previous verses and this is now a test of Abraham's servant it's a test of his loyalty I mean you can imagine after going on a journey like this you can imagine after going uh, you know with with camels and through the the dust and, and the desert and reaching this this place having a favorable conclusion it might be fairly tempting tempting to be wined and dined for 10 days and that might seem like quite a nice thing to do Maybe you might feel like you've earned it. It's a test for Abraham's servant. Verse 56. But he said to them, do not detain me. 
now that the Lord has granted success to my journey. Send me on my way so I may go to my master. It's great loyalty to his master, Abraham, isn't it? But also, I think, it's a display of his godliness. You see, the master is an employee of Abraham. And he wants to do what his employer wants him to do. You know, for those of us who work Monday to Friday, a key part of us living the Christian life is being diligent employees. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we working hard in the workplace? I mean, how long do we take at the Friday pub lunch when there's work still to do at the office? How much do we think through ethical decisions at work? To what extent does the end justify the means? We're to work hard and we're to be obedient in our life. So the the servant is obedient. He's faithful to Abraham and to God. But Laban and uh, her mother come up with another plan. So they say, verse 57, then they said, let's call the young woman and ask her about it. And so they called Rebecca and asked her, will you go with this man? Hoping that she will join them in, in delaying and uh, whatever their motives are, uh, you know, play along with their, um, their plans. I will go, she said. Wow. Just like that. I will go. Bold, full of conviction, full of a trust that God is in control. Maybe it's because she's seen the servant's loyalty and the servant's uh, integrity in the way that he's dealt with it. Maybe she's heard about Abraham through her family, like Abraham had heard uh, of what was going back in his own country. Maybe she just wanted to get away from Laban. Uh, We don't really know, but she trusts that God's in, in, in control. She trusts that God can be trusted. Her words aren't unlike the words of Ruth when she speaks to her mother-in-law Naomi in Ruth 1.16. She says, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. Ruth and Rebecca give this statement of absolute commitment. It's a wedding vow, but really it's so much more. It's a trust that God is in control. It's the walk of obedience in Rebecca's life. The blessing of God is evident in this chapter as we see his hand bringing all things together for his sovereign purposes. Uh, and it's, it's a lovely chapter, how everything comes together. He uses everyone to do this. He uses uh, Abraham and his wisdom. He uses uh, the servants and his loyalty. He uses Rebecca and her bold conviction. He even uses the deceitfulness of Laban. He brings all of that together to achieve what he wants to happen. 
And often it's only when we look back that we see how God works. When Abraham was in the middle of this, when he was making a decision about who would be a wife for Isaac, he didn't know how it was going to pan out. Only when he looked back on it could he have seen how God worked. And, and he didn't know the, the, the specific outcome at the beginning. And so we need to be careful when we read a chapter like this and we think about God's blessing. We need to be careful that we don't fall into the error that God is just a pawn to get us what we want. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. A name it and claim it theology where as long as we want something enough uh, and claim it in Jesus' name, then it'll come to us is an abuse of the Bible. That's not how the sovereign God works. I was in Fiji last year with our uh, missionary, Tony Wright, who we prayed for earlier. And we were in a, a weekend away with some of his uni-age students. And uh, we had a, a guy's night. And there was 20 or 30 of us um, sitting around and talking about uh, the Bible and talking about uh, living the Christian life. And one of Tony's students, as an honest question, asked... Can I walk up to a girl and claim her as a wife in Jesus' name? I was surprised when I heard that question. And I, don't, I, mean, I don't think there's many of us here who would think of that as a, a loving course of action or a wise course of action or a suitable course of action. I don't think we go headlong into prosperity gospel teaching. But we are susceptible of it every now and then. We sort of dip in every now and then because we're surprised when hardship comes. We're surprised when God doesn't answer our prayers in the way that we want him to. Isn't God supposed to be good to us? We ask. And so if we are learning from Genesis 24 that we, to make wise decisions by walking with God like Abraham and to pray like the servant and to walk obediently, like many in this chapter do, what will prevent us from doubting God's goodness as we do that when our prayers aren't answered the way that we want? Well, we look to Jesus. Like all things in the Christian life, Jesus is our example and Jesus is our source of comfort. We look to his prayer in Gethsemane. Jesus, with wisdom from walking with God, knew what was coming. He knew the cross was coming. And so he prayed. He says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. And he displaces obedience. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Luke continues and he says, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus received supernatural support when he needed supernatural strength. You know, through the Bible, when somebody gets a direct word from God, like we sometimes wish we would get, it's because there is something horrendously difficult coming. For us, by and large, our lives can be guided by Scripture. We know what God requires of us to walk obediently. And we have brothers and sisters in the church who can help us to make wise decisions. And we have 
a sovereign God who we can find rest in. So friend, find rest in God's sovereignty. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that he did walk the road of obedience when it would have been so much easier not to. And we pray for all of us, Lord, who are here today. We pray that you would help us to trust in you with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding. Amen.